0: Hello everyone. Before we get into this week's episode, just a quick programming note. As you've probably noticed, we've begun inserting ads into the show's back catalog. The goal of this is to help cover show-related costs both in terms of equipment and hosting, and also access to academic texts. The hope is that these ads, in conjunction with our donors on Patreon, mean a minimally intrusive experience for you all. In other words, we're doing a bit of Patreon boosting and a bit of ads, rather than the whole bunch of either, so that, ideally, the experience is better for listeners. I do want to note that starting with last week's episode, podcast episodes are also being uploaded to Patreon ad-free, so if you want to listen without ads, that's one way to do it. So, thanks to all of you for your understanding, and thank you again to our wonderful patrons, and now, on with the show. Welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 451, Those Swept Away. Today I want to tell a story about one of my favorite periods of Japanese history, the Bakumatsu era and the Meiji Restoration, that fascinating few decades of transformation from feudalism and reckoning with ideas of empire and modernity but I want to do it by telling a story about a person who usually does not get more than a footnote in Tales of this time. In large part, that's because of their rather unusual social status. Where most of the major actors of the Bakumatsu era were samurai, particularly from the kashi, the lowest ranks of the samurai class, who were often deeply dissatisfied with the limits set on their ability to climb above those with better birthright but less talent, this person was a peasant Admittedly, they were a gono, a wealthy peasant with the money and time to spend on things like education and leisure, but a peasant nonetheless. Where many of the major actors of this time were young, this person was in their 50s. And, while many of the famous people of the Bakumatsu era were men, this person was a woman. Indeed, she is one of only six women honored with a posthumous rank in Japan's imperial court hierarchy during the Meiji period, compared with literally thousands of men. Who is she? Well, here's where we get to our first bit of complication. Today, she is usually referred to by the name Matsuo Tasiko. If you look up any book about her or go looking for historic sites associated with her, that's how she'll be named. But that name is kind of an anachronism. It wasn't until the Meiji period that the Japanese government required women to use their husbands' surnames if married, and she herself did not until that law was passed, preferring to use her birth name of Takemura. Similarly, it was not until the Meiji period that it became standard to affix the syllable ko to women's names, etsuko, akiko, or natsuko, for example. The syllable literally means something like child, which has led to a lot of feminist pushback against it, I don't have any data to back this up, but anecdotally, it seems like today those co-names are becoming less and less popular. But at any rate, before the Meiji era, Matsuo Taseko was often just called Tase, literally meaning something like abundant energy, which, as we'll see, certainly fits. Anyway, I'm going to use Matsuo Taseko simply because, again, that's what you're most likely to find her listed as today if you go do more research on your own but it is worth noting that arguably it is historically more accurate to call her Takemura Tase instead. Matsuo Tasiko was born in the Ina Valley of southern Shinano Province, what's now Nagano Prefecture, on the 25th day of the 5th lunar month of 1811. Her birth family, the Takemuras, were the headmen of a small village called Yamamoto, about 10 kilometers, but over 6 miles, Southwest of the nearest big city, the castle town of Ida. They belonged to the peasant class, but were among the lucky few called gono, peasant families who had managed to accrue wealth and influence through owning land, having side businesses, or working as village headmen on behalf of the ostensible samurai rulers of their region. For example, Matsuo Tasako's birth family were headmen, responsible for managing a rather odd situation for Yamamoto village. Two-thirds of the village families were part of the fief of the Kondo family of Hatamoto, bannermen and direct retainers of the Tokugawa shoguns. The other third of the families paid their taxes to a junior branch of the Tokugawa family, the Matsudaira family of Takasu Domain. This complicated administrative system made headmen like Tasuko's father Takemura Tsunemitsu all the more valuable. They were the ones who ensured that taxes were paid to the correct people at the right times, and who tried to at least maintain the appearance that the locals were following central government edicts, demanding austerity and abstention from frivolity for all peasants. This despite the fact that there was a good amount of frivolity to be found. Tasiko's father was actually from the neighboring city of Ida, a part of the Ida domain, the Takemura family had been without a son to serve as heir, so they'd adopted Sunemitsu and married him to their daughter Sachi, a fairly common practice at the time. Ida, despite being a fairly minor city, had a good amount of bustle to it. In the 1830s, for example, local merchants covered the cost to bring the famous Edo Kabuki actor Ichikawa Danjiro VII for a 10-day stand. He apparently played to a packed house every single night. They had the money to do this because the Ina Valley was fairly prosperous, home to solid farmland made better by the advent of improved farming techniques during the Edo period, and home to a booming silk industry, as well as a flowing river, the Tenryu River and packhorse Road, connecting the region north-south and linking the major city of Ida to two of the country's major highways, the Tokaido along the Pacific coast and the Nakasendo through the mountainous interior. All told, this was a pretty prosperous place to be a peasant, and Matsuo Tasiko's family were particularly prosperous for peasants. So what about Tasiko's own young life? Well, here's the thing. In a certain sense, it's well documented. Her later accomplishments would ensure there were no shortage of hagiographers looking to write about this exceptional woman who earned recognition from the imperial court. But that also meant that many of these writers were willing to play a bit fast and loose with the documentation or connection to any form of reality if it meant a good story, especially a story that fit conventions about what a good young girl was supposed to look like. For example, there's all kinds of stories about Tassico being caught as a kid skimping on her chores and reading something from her dad's substantial library instead, but those stories are kind of stock for any kid with an interest in literature and poetry, so it's hard to believe they're actually true, or at least actually documented, instead of just being what an audience would expect to read about someone who is known to be that kind of person. And, I should note, this is how our story starts, with poetry. The fact that the Takemuras were a family of headmen required they know how to read and write, since how else could they communicate with their social superiors, a key requirement of doing the job of village headmen. Given the complexities involved in managing a wealthy peasant household, both sexes were expected to learn how to read and write, and indeed, both of Tosiko's parents picked up the skill. Indeed, facility with letters was expected for women of Tassico or her mother Sachi's social station. Wives were supposed to be quick and clever to help manage things, but shouldn't be too beautiful or worried about their appearances, lest they be tempted to infidelity. The two elder Takemuras apparently really enjoyed reading. Supposedly the family owned enough books to fill two floors at the back of their storehouse. And Tasuko herself apparently picked up the practice from her parents, and then at age 11 was sent to some relatives, the Kitaharas, to further her studies. That practice was fairly common for wealthy peasants, a good way for a kid to both broaden their horizons and learn discipline away from the eyes of indulgent parents. Tasako's cousin, Kitahara Yorinobu, and his wife Kiso took the kid in and tutored her. Kitahara was a village official but had wide-ranging interests in everything from poetry to the natural sciences and passed these along to his young pupil. Apparently, she was quite fond of him in turn. After his death in 1849, Tasako was one of the former pupils, he had 111 students over his lifetime, who paid to donate a large picture of a horse to a local temple in honor of his memory. poetry in particular, became an interest of hers, one she would continue to pursue after her marriage in 1829 to Matsuo Motoharu, son of a wealthy headman from the neighboring village of Tomono. This marriage was very much arranged, it was not a love match, but the records we have seem to suggest that Tasuko at least cared for her husband, and the two had a prosperous married life that included seven children, three daughters, and four sons. They also had a very active social life. In 1853, the same year Commodore Perry arrived in Edo Bay to demand Japan open its borders to the west, the Matsuo family hosted a poetry party in their home, creating a joint compendium called Yamabuki no Kaori, or The Scent of the Mountain Rose. Parties like this, which saw much carousing, drinking of sake, and smoking of tobacco, were a regular occasion for the family despite the fact that they violated Tokugawa prohibitions outlying such frivolity for peasants, who were supposed to model austerity and hard work. The family could also afford to travel, which theoretically was heavily restricted, but in practice it was pretty easy to claim a religious pilgrimage as an excuse to go sightseeing. The Matsuos went on many such trips, including one to Mount Fuji in 1845 and one to Edo in 1855, where they were even hosted by Matsudaira Yoshitatsu the daimyo of Takasu Domain, and overlord of Tomono Village. Yoshitatsu was apparently very impressed with her, particularly after she composed a poem for him on the spot. The two exchanged poems, and Yoshitatsu even gifted her youngest child, then only four, with a few presents. It is on the one hand extremely impressive, but on the other not that surprising, that Matsuo Tasiko's poetry impressed this man of stature so much because even while managing this truly impressive brood of children and such complicated social situations, Taseko would continue to very seriously pursue poetry. She could compose both modern haikai, what became haiku, and more importantly, picked up a facility with waka, the classical poetry styles associated with the grand old days of the Heian period and its aristocracy. Waka poetry in particular was a great way for families of wealth but low social status, more or less the definition of what wealthy peasants were, to try and eke out some more status for themselves, claiming a bit of the luster of this ancient and distinguished art. This was not easy to do, mind you. Until the 1700s, knowledge of waka was generally restricted to families of aristocrats from Kyoto who made a living teaching their ancestors craft. It also required very substantial familiarity with the classical corpus of waka literature, particularly famous anthologies like the Kokin Wakashu and Shinkokin Wakashu, since, as the great Fujiwara no Teika established, references to the classics were a key part of waka poetry itself. But by the 1800s, the discipline had begun to spread outside of these rarefied circles, and Tasika was able to find a tutor Fukuzumi Kiyokaze, who lived in Ida and introduced her to the craft. After his death in 1848, Tasuko continued to study the style, composing her own poems and reading books on the subject. And it's this interest in the classical literary tradition and classical poetic tradition that explains why Tasuko eventually took an interest in a wandering scholar who made his way to Ida in 1852 by the name of Iwasaki Nagayo. Iwasaki was a scholar by trade and, most importantly for Tasiko, was willing to keep working with her on her poetry. But he was also part of a fascinating social movement because he was a disciple of Hirata Kanetane and a member of the Hirata Atsutane School of Kokugaku. Since we talked about this movement literally last week, almost like I planned it that way, I'm not going to recount everything about it here. For a quick refresh, Kokugaku was an intellectual movement of this time that posited the superiority of all things Japanese and the inferiority of anything of foreign influence, from Buddhism to Chinese styles of poetry. The Hirata school in particular, as the name might clue you in on, was led by the scholar Hirata Atsutane and then his son and heir Kanetane and became the most dominant school of Kokugaku by the late 1800s, Kanetane in particular would be very influential in the early Meiji period. Tasako did not immediately become a disciple of the Hirata school. Iwasaki Nagayo himself didn't even take any such disciples for six years after he moved to Ida. But he was immediately very influential on her. He introduced her to the preferred style of poetry of the Hirata school, based not on the Heian classics, but on the Manyoshu which, as an older text, was supposedly even more free, so the thinking went, of Chinese influence, and thus expressive of a purer Japanese-ness. It was during this time that Matsuo Tasako also began to develop an interest in politics. Some versions of her meeting with Matsudaira Yoshitatsu in Edo, a few years after she began studying with Iwasaki, have her going so far as to give advice on the politics of the day, Such things, especially the ongoing foreign crisis, being of great concern to the Hirata disciples. It might seem hard to believe that story, by the way, but one of the poems that Lord Matsudaira wrote her in return distinctly references martial themes and the, quote, good quality of the straight bows they cut in Shinano, where Tasako is from, which lends some credibility to the idea that they had talked about some military and political subjects. Of course, not all Hirata school ideas were to her liking. Both Atsutane and Kanetane rejected Waka poetry because of its association with frivolous romance. Atsutane in particular had derided the great Heian classic The Tale of Genji as a tale of lust and dissolution on matters of little importance. Yet Taseko continued to write Waka and reference Genji in her work. Clearly, she did not agree with this negative assessment. But Iwasaki's discussion of politics and Hirata school ideas did begin to resonate with her, particularly as the foreign crisis grew worse and worse. In 1858, news came of a humiliating new round of unequal treaties forcing even more Japanese ports to open to foreigners, and of the subsequent crackdowns by the regent Nausuke on any dissent against the decision to sign these treaties. When Yi e was in turn assassinated in 1860 by members of the growing Imperial Loyalist movement, who opposed any profaning of the sacred land of Japan's emperors by foreigners, and who were often very influenced by the Hirata school, Tasiko wrote a poem praising the assassins as quote, inflaming true Japanese spirit for the sake of these myriad islands, for the sake of the country they forget their families and consider their lives less than nothing. Eventually, Matsuo Taseko would join the Hirata school as a disciple in 1861, paying the massive initiation fee of 5,000 mon, which was 50 times the salary of an average day laborer. She was one of only 29 women who ever joined, less than 1% of the membership, and the only one to join before her husband, who never joined at all. This was, for her, a deeply personal commitment to Hirata's ideas – and it was one she took very seriously. She helped raise a shrine near Ida to the four great Kokugaku teachers recognized by the Hirata School, Karano Azumamaro, Kamono Mabuchi, Motori Norinaga, and of course Hirata Atsutane himself. She also helped raise funds for the publication of Atsutane's massive, and at the time yet unpublished, treatise, Koshiden, or Lectures on Ancient History. That effort was ultimately successful, and modern printings of Koshiden are based on woodblocks Tasiko helped fund in part. Her name is still visible on the list of sponsors of the woodblock edition, published as an appendix in modern printings. She personally contributed 12 gold ryo to the cost of the printing. Currency conversions are tricky in these circumstances, but that's a massive amount of money. At the time, it took about 7,000 mon to make one gold ryo, so that's 850 times the salary of a day laborer. And this devotion to the Hirata school is essential to understanding why, in 1862, Matsuo Tasiko decided to up and go to the imperial city of Kyoto. Here, we have to stop, back up, and refresh a bit on the politics of this time. In 1858, beginning with the American Consul General Townsend Harris. The foreign powers forced a new wave of unequal treaties on Japan that would open even more ports to foreign ships, allow for foreign permanent residence, and impose the hated system of extraterritorial law, making foreigners not subject to Japan's own legal system. The treaties were naturally quite controversial, but the Tokugawa shogunate, led by the chief regent or tairō Nausuke, clamped down on all dissent, imprisoning or executing anyone who objected to the treaties which E, frankly correctly believed were a necessary evil, as Japan was not yet strong enough for a direct confrontation with the West. That heavy-handed approach worked until March 1860, when Yi e was assassinated by samurai who were a part of the Loyalist movement, as we already discussed. In Loyalist thinking, the foreign crisis required a response from those dedicated enough to pursue the highest cause of all, the highest loyalty to Japan's central figure, the emperor, who, according to the Kokugaku train of thought which many of them were influenced by, was the source of all Japanese-ness and the link between Japan and its gods. Japan's special status, in turn, required rejecting the foreigners who dared defile it, hence the quintessential early loyalist slogan, Sono Joi, revere the emperor, expel the barbarians. After Nausuke was assassinated, the Loyalist movement began to garner strength. Its members began to assert more influence in policy discussions in the domains they were from, and lower samurai particularly devoted to the cause began to flee their homelands and come to Kyoto, there to pledge themselves to the emperor or the aristocrats of the court surrounding him. Those who couldn't find gainful employment in this manner would wander the streets attacking anyone who might be accused of offending loyalist sensibilities, say, by doing deals with foreign merchants. Kyoto was, as a result, a city on edge, waiting to see what was going to happen. Would the Tokugawa shogunate, weak and rudderless since Yi's assassination, crack down on the loyalists in Kyoto? Would the current emperor, Kome, who had hinted at supporting the movement, come out and publicly back it? Would the city explode into further violence? It was in this climate that Matsuo Tasuko decided she had to go to Kyoto, something that, according to her diaries, she'd been considering doing for some time. In the autumn of 1862, she made her intentions known to her family and departed shortly after. What exactly did she see herself doing in Kyoto? Frankly, it's not entirely clear. She justified her actions to some relatives who were very reticent to see her go, by saying that she was simply going to further her poetry studies, and that at any rate she needed a change of scenery. She certainly did write a great deal of poetry during this time as well. Later biographies would describe the choice as one of pure patriotism, motivated by loyalty to country and emperor, and a desire to serve however she could. Her own diaries also reflect that, to an extent, but they also describe a fair amount of sightseeing during her six months in Japan's ancient capital. For example, visits along the initial journey to some spots associated with the great Waka poet Onono Komachi, or to the northwestern part of Kyoto to visit the grave of the aristocrat Wakeno Kiyomaro, an advisor to the early emperors who had been instrumental in preventing a seizure of power by a monk outside the imperial line. So the answer to what was she doing in Kyoto is that she was kind of doing all three of these things at once, growing her poetry skills, demonstrating her loyalty to the court, and engaging in some sightseeing of places long associated with her studies. Of course, it's the political side of her activities that tend to get the most attention today. Informed by her Hirata school beliefs, Matsuo was incensed by the rumors swirling Kyoto of the mistreatment of the imperial court, that the court's aristocrats couldn't even afford paper on which to write poems, and that the court's own sake was of the lowest quality, or the latest rumor that someone was apparently planning to assassinate Emperor Komei by poisoning his drinks. That last rumor apparently had some serious legs. A separate group of loyalist samurai heard it and cornered the emperor's personal food taster, who hastily promised to die in the emperor's service if needed. Matsuo Tasuko set herself to seeing what she could do about these conditions, Fortunately, she had two advantages to make use of in that regard. First was her status as an official Hirata disciple, which naturally gave her an in with fellow Kokugaku adherents and especially fellow Hirata school members. The second was her practice as a poet, poetry being a classic social skill that could get you access to some pretty rarefied social circles if you were good at it. Both of these skills were instrumental at getting Tasuko into the circles of the Loyalist movement in Kyoto, because within days of her arrival they allowed her to meet two important figures. The first was Sara Toshisada, a Loyalist from Choshu domain in western Honshu, one of the domains with the strongest Loyalist presence, and a fellow Hirata disciple. The second was Fukuba Bisei, a Samurai and Loyalist scholar, though not a Hirata follower himself. Indeed, you might remember him from last week. Fukuba was one of the people who, in the early 1870s, got into a public fight with Hirata Kanetane and helped bring the Hirata school down. But for now, common foes united the Loyalist movement, and these two men were impressed by a 51-year-old peasant woman whose commitment was such she'd come all this way. They quickly introduced her into Loyalist circles, and within a week and a half she was meeting members of the Kyoto aristocracy, sympathetic to the loyalist movement. Given that said movement sought to restore the emperor to power, and by proximity the court aristocracy, there were quite a few of those. Tasika was deeply fawning in her approach to the nobility and her fellow loyalists, writing them poems at social events expressing her awe at being in such august company, and occasionally her disappointment in having, to directly quote one of her poems, the weak body of a useless woman, which limited her ability to contribute to the cause. Which is one of the very interesting things about Matsuo Tasiko. Hirata Atsutane's teachings were decidedly misogynistic. He clearly stated a belief that men were superior to women, and Matsuo Taseko seems to have accepted this alongside all his other ideas. And yet, she also clearly defied what would be seen as the correct station for a woman by coming alone to Kyoto. Her husband didn't accompany her. And by engaging in politics, not to mention the fact that her diaries mention plenty of flouting feminine conventions of modesty in clothing, and flouting of conventions related to abstinence from tobacco and drinking. There is an interesting, and since she never addressed it directly in her own writing, unresolved tension in Taseko's beliefs and her actions. But what exactly did Taseko do in Kyoto to earn her such a storied reputation in the future? Well, to be honest, parts of her activities are a bit unclear. She highlighted three things in particular in her diaries. She was elated that word of her arrival, her dedication to the court, and her poetry apparently had made it back to Emperor Kome, who asked about her at one point. She was also able to see the emperor from afar during a public appearance at a religious ceremony, though the two never interacted. Second, she left leaflets outside the imperial palace. She doesn't state what about, but likely they were condemning traitors within the imperial court, particularly anyone who advocated for the strategy of Kolbugatai, a political strategy of the time advocating for more unity, between the imperial court and the Tokugawa shogunate. While she was in Kyoto, the most common form of that advocacy was support for a political marriage between the shogun Tokugawa Iemochi and Kazunomiya, Emperor Komei's sister. That marriage was very unpopular with loyalists, who sighed as sullying the imperial family and promoting evil politics, such as supporting the foreign treaties. Finally, Tassico claimed to have, quote, "...wandered through the royal flowerbeds in search of traitors," unquote. Her meaning here is a bit obscure, but we have at least a guess what she's talking about. Thanks to her gender and her connections, Tassico was able to make some friends in the women's section of the Imperial Palace, where, naturally, her male counterparts could not go. That, in turn, allowed her to get news from the Imperial household and pass it back to both her loyalist allies and Hirata Kanetane, the head of the Hirata school who did come to Kyoto during this time period. So my guess, at least, is that this is a reference to her connections within the palace, giving her an ability to report back to her allies about what was going on within. There are possibly a few other things she was involved in that she may have chosen not to record in her diaries. For example, her diary mentions discussing secrets with a friend on the 29th day of the first lunar month of 1863. It is suspected, though not proven, that that is a reference to the assassination the previous night of Kagawa Hajime, a follower of the noble Chigusa Arifumi, who was an early advocate of Kazunomiya's marriage to the shogun Iemochi. Kagawa's severed head was set up outside the temple where the shogun's chief envoy in Kyoto, the future Tokugawa Yoshinobu, was staying, next to a placard accusing Yoshinobu of false loyalty to the imperial throne. Kagawa's arms, meanwhile, were thrown into the compounds of two nobles associated with promoting the marriage scheme, meaning that because of Shinto taboos around blood, the nobles in question would have to refrain from attending the imperial court for a time. We don't know for certain that this was the secret which tasuko was referencing, Nor do we know who killed Kagawa, but whoever it was, given the motives, Tasako did probably meet them at some point. It is not at all unclear how plugged in she was to the violent side of loyalist politics in Kyoto. Eventually, her loyalist connections would be what forced her out of the city. On the 22nd day of the second lunar month of 1863, a group of Tasako's most radical fellow Hirata disciples broke into Toji-in, the old family temple of the Ashkaga Shoguns. There they removed the heads of the memorial statues of Ashkaga Takauji, Ashkaga Yoshimitsu, and Ashkaga Yoshimasa, respectively the founder of the Ashkaga Shogunate who had betrayed the retired Emperor Go Daigo to seize power, his grandson who had accepted nominal vassal status to China's emperor and thus sullied the honor of the imperial throne, and the shogun who had overseen the devastating destruction of Kyoto at the start of the Sengoku period civil wars. The heads were then displayed on the Sanjo Bridge over the Kamo River, alongside a placard condemning the three retroactively for their crimes and warning that modern-day traitors to the throne would face the same fate. The men who perpetrated this incident did not expect to be punished for what they considered a simple demonstration of loyalty to the imperial court, And indeed, condemning these three Ashikaga rulers in particular was not really a novel idea. Tasiko herself likely knew better, as she was aware of the plot but wrote in her diary that she tried to discourage them. As it turned out, she was right. Just a short time earlier, a Tokugawa relative and daimyo of Aizu domain named Matsudaira Katamori had taken up residence in Kyoto, having recently been empowered as the Kyoto Shugoshoku, essentially a military governor sent to restore order to the city. The statue beheading was one of his first chances to do so. His officers swiftly set about arresting loyalists on the grounds that said beheading was not some veiled historical criticism of the Ashikaga, but a veiled threat against Tokugawa rule, which, to be fair, was not an unfair assessment. Later accounts would have it that when she heard about the arrests, Tasuko apparently set out not trying to escape but putting on makeup and doing her hair so that when she was arrested, she would not, quote, look unkempt. Likely, she just set about fleeing immediately and did successfully make it out of the city and back to the Ina Valley, bringing an end to her six months in Kyoto. Along the way, she composed a mournful poem. kyō Tsuraki Arashini, Chiru Sakura, Nagarete no Nawa Ikani Naruran. The cherry blossoms fall in the cruel storms of yesterday and today. What will happen to those that have been swept away? But this was not the end of Matsuo Tasuko's time in politics. She would continue to follow the news first with despondency as the loyalist movement faced a vicious crackdown and series of setbacks, the utter defeat of Choshu domain forces that tried to close the Shimonoseki Straits to foreign ships, the burning of Kagoshima by British warships, and of course the utter failure of a Choshu-led loyalist coup in the summer of 1864. Many of her loyalist friends died in the fighting, and Tasiko's writings are filled with lament at her inability to contribute. However, the tide of the loyalist cause would turn in the future, And by 1867, Tasako and her friends were excitedly discussing the prospects of the Loyalist movement in the aftermath of a humiliation of the shogunate by the forces of a swiftly modernizing Choshu. And come 1868, Tasako would direct her own son to help lead the newly christened imperial army through Shinano on their way to Edo. He would accompany that army through its conquest of the rest of Japan. Tasuko herself, meanwhile, would head to Kyoto, where victorious loyalists were gathering to celebrate the moment as the emperor was finally restored to power. She would eventually make contact with her friends from the old days, at least those who had survived, who in turn brought her to the intention of the leaders of the new imperial state. Probably the most important of those connections was Iwakura Tomomi, the minor Kyoto aristocrat who, for his advocacy for the kazunomiya Iemochi marriage, had once upon a time been a villain for the Loyalist movement. However, in the intervening years, Iwakura had become an advocate for anti-Tokugawa domains like Choshu and Satsuma, and eventually the chief liaison between those domains and the emperor's court. From there, Iwakura would rise to become a prominent member of the new government, most famous for his advocacy for and leadership of the Iwakura Expedition, which would take much of the Japanese government leadership overseas to learn about the West. Apparently Matsuo Tasako made something of an impression on him because on the 15th day of the 5th lunar month, Tasako was invited by Tomomi to join his household. Iwakura Tomomi and other senior leaders were to accompany the emperor on his procession to Edo, where the imperial court would set up shop to govern the country. It would take some time to move the rest of the Iwakura household to the new city. In the interim, Tasika was asked to help look after the rest of the Iwakura family, a task she gladly took on for six months, leading to lasting friendships with the other women of the house. However, at the end of those six months, when the family moved to what was now Tokyo, Tasuko rejected an offer of a three-year contract to join the family retinue, preferring instead to return home to the Ina Valley. She would occasionally visit the capital but mostly focus on her family life, helping care for her grandchildren and arrange marriages or livelihoods for her daughters. Her husband would die in 1879. She herself would pass on June 10th, 1894. In her later years, Tassiko expressed some dissatisfaction with the direction the new government had gone. Imperial Japan, after all, did not become a Hirata-style Shinto theocracy which rejected all foreign ideas, and the rapid course of modernization and westernization was not to her liking. But she also found ways to accommodate the situation to her views. For example, when the new western-style constitution was announced in 1889, Tasako wrote a poem praising it as, in fact, representing a return to the imperial reigns of ancient days. Even before her death, Tasako was something of a minor celebrity with a steady stream of visitors coming to the Ina Valley to meet her. After she passed, stories of her fame only grew, with a growing number of biographers using her story, but primarily through the lens of Tasako as a patriot and a model of ideal Meiji period femininity, embodying the principles of Ryosai Kenbo, a good wife and wise mother. Incidents from her life were modified as needed to fit this new view. For example, Minnie added a section to her biography where she asked her husband for permission to go to Kyoto because of the loyalty she owed to the emperor, something that didn't actually happen, or where Restoration period figures she never actually met praise her as a model of imperial loyalism and true womanhood. Meanwhile, aspects of her character that didn't fit this narrative, such as her anti-Buddhist or anti-Confucian views inherited from Hirata Atsutane, or her occasional forays into cheesy love poetry to go with her politics, were ignored. One early 20th century biography even added an entirely fictitious episode where Tasako saves the life of Iwakura Tomomi in 1863 by convincing loyalists planning to kill him not to do so. That absolutely never happened, but you still sometimes see people repeat that story as if it is true. The only exception of this rebranding of Matsuo Tasiko into an ideal of Meiji period womanhood is, and I desperately want to find a copy of this, a 1911 version of her story written by Watanabe Mokuzen for the magazine Fujinsekai, or Women's World, which turns her story into, and I swear this is true, a swashbuckling lesbian romance where a geisha falls helplessly in love with tosiko who is now also an expert sword fighter having learned the skill from loyalist samurai which sounds like a fantastic read to me but apparently her family were very scandalized by that portrayal during the 30s and 40s Tasiko's story appeared repeatedly in official government propaganda aimed at mobilizing women to support japan's wars overseas Obviously, once those wars ended in disaster, she began to fade a bit from public consciousness, associated as she was with the war years. It was only really starting in the 1960s that interest in her story, now framed in terms of academic ideas like feminism, began to take root once again. But Tasuko herself doesn't really fit any of these ideological frames. She was not a Meiji-style good wife and wise mother, nor a feminist in the modern sense of the term. And that, I think, is what makes her so interesting. What we can see of her worldview through her writings and her actions seems very familiar in some ways, but very foreign to us in others. As the famous saying goes, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is a part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show and our other shows at facingbackward.com or our social media, Facebook.com slash Facing Backward Podcasts or at Backward History on Twitter. You can support the network at Patreon.com slash Facing Backward. Special thanks to those who have given at our shout-out tier, Jan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Alayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William, Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, A House is a Perfectly Cromulent Mascot, and of course, the fish I catch are Rhodes Scholars compared to Samuel Alito, Schmuck. You can also find out more about this show in particular at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Special thanks to new donors on the History of Japan Patreon, Aaron, and Brody. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week when we start a two-part series on part of Japan's modern military, the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Forces.